You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and contribute today. Thanks, everyone. Good morning. And on behalf of the New York Encounter, I want to welcome all of you, uh, those of you here in person, those of you watching online. Uh, welcome to our session on Journalism is in Service of Truth. I'm Brandon Vaidyanathan, sociologist. Uh, don't worry, don't let that scare you. We're here to talk about journalism, and I'm moderating this session with two uh, really distinguished journalists here. Uh, I'm going to introduce them very briefly, but please do check out their full bios on our website. So to my left, Patrick Radden Keefe is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's the author of many New York Times bestsellers, including Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, and most recently, The Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Uh, Tom Rosenstiel is a visiting professor at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. And before that, he was for nine years the executive director of the American Press Institute. He's the author of several novels, the most recent of which is titled The Days to Come. Uh, we're going to preface our conversation today with a short video about Oriana Fallaci, one of the most important journalists of the past century. Her words, in fact, provide us with this session's theme. To introduce the video, we're delighted and honored to have with us Elena Perazzini, accomplished author and documentary filmmaker who worked very closely with Fallaci for a number of years. So please join me in welcoming Elena Perazzini. Thank you very much for being here. Um, so when I heard that the theme of the New York encounter was this urge for the truth, I thought about journalism. And uh, immediately after, I thought of Oriana Fallaci. She's one of the greatest, albeit controversial, Italian writers whose greatest passion, passion was the search for truth. Many journalists have dedicated their work to the search for truth. For many of them, the urge for seeking the truth was greater than the risks they took. Fallaci can not only be considered an example of that, but I chose to talk about her also because she's someone who left a mark in my life. Fallaci moved to New York in 1963 and lived here for 43 years until two weeks before her death. This is where I became her personal assistant in 1999. My idea of her started to form when I was eight years old. My mom forbade me to read Fallaci's book, but one day I secretly read a small volume with a dedication where she said, to whom tirelessly asks why, at the cost of suffering, even of dying. Since then, she has become a hero to me. However, my job interview with her in New York was a disaster. <laughs> Fallaci ruthlessly attacked me, judging my life choices as a newcomer to New York after a few minutes of conversation. And there, I began to dislike her. To my surprise, though, the next day, I was hired. The time I worked for her is not one of my best memories. 
I remember getting out of the office and bursting into tears while walking to the subway station. I also remember my boyfriend asking me why I kept going to work. Fallaci was definitely short-tempered. But one day, a little miracle happened. She invited me to her forbidden library room, and from that day on, meeting after meeting, she started talking to me almost as a friend. On that day, she told me about her return from her first experience on the front lines of the Vietnam War. She told me about how she later wrote her disillusionment for her useless research for, for the truth. A truth that I can't find, but that is there. I know that it is there, at the bottom of this well that I drill with the world. And I wonder if it's necessary to touch the bottom to find it, the truth. Many of Fallaci's stories impressed me. All of her books were charming to me. I was very disappointed, though, by some positions she took, while others infuriated me. But during our conversations, I remember being struck by a peculiar desire I recognized she had. She truly wanted to help me to understand life. She had the urge to convey what she had learned, to make her experiences useful to someone else. Her desire to educate extended beyond me. As a matter of fact, Fallaci started giving speeches to students in the late 70s, but they were, published, uh, they were not published until years after her death. And when I read them, I was struck because I could find traces of our private conversations in her library room. In a speech she gave at Amherst College in Massachusetts in April of 1976, she talked about World War II when, she said, because of the lack of freedom, real journalism didn't exist in Italy. So journalism only survived thanks to clandestine papers. Thanks to them, at 12 years old, little Oriana could know things that allowed her to grow and understand her rights. So her idea of journalism is that it has to help people to find and preserve their dignity, to eliminate ignorance, and to give them the instruments to defend themselves. Here is another passage that talks about the writer's purpose. The writer's goal is the search for the truth that serves life. Without the search for truth, we writers cannot work because we lack the main ingredient of our cuisine, good food, truth, that preserves life. Here is another passage that talks about the impact of information on society, where she underlines that the journalist must denounce wrongs, abuses, and crime. He has to take a stand. He has to take a risk. It's his duty. Fallaci also talked to students about being independent as a journalist, and we can see what she has to say about it in an interview with Charlie Laws in the video that we are about to watch. Uh, finally, to summarize, to summarize her view on journalism, I want to conclude with something she often repeated. My work is wonderful, as long as it is approached not as a job, but as a mission. Thank you.
you know, people don't realize what war is. People uh, uh, see war on TV. On TV, you know, blood looks uh, like this, the idea of them. sia un po' un dovere per me di condannare gli uomini che ammazzano gli uomini con le guerre. che potesse provocare questa irruzione pazza, violenta. The lady I'm about to introduce is a legend uh, in her way. Uh, she's a, a journalist and uh, one of the most envied ones in the world. Um, I have often heard that people have submitted interviews with her and then wish they hadn't done them afterwards and yet they continue to do them because she has a reputation for being one of the great journalists uh, of our time. She did the interview with Henry Kissinger, which he then read and said, I was stupid to give that. And um, it's very rare for him to give a private interview, but she got one. And then she did an incredible interview with President Thieu of South Vietnam. And uh, will you welcome, please, uh, the remarkable Oriana Falaci. This can't be very exciting for you. You've covered wars and riots and been in planes and tanks and trenches in the Middle East and everywhere. And my work. Uh, Dr. Kissinger is a, a diplomatic, is a politician, and uh, we all know that uh, politics and diplomacy are the sublimation of lying, and sometimes they do have to lie. Yeah, they have to. I mean, I do understand that. It's a necessity. But I am a writer, I am a journalist, and I have to do all the contrary. I have to write the truth. Her conversation with political leaders, including Henry Kissinger and Ayatollah Khomeini, were at the times confrontational, but always revealing. A child of socialists, she had contempt for authority and once wrote, I have always looked at disobedience towards the oppressive as the only way to use the miracle of having been born. most proud of? Several things, my honesty, my guts if you want, which is recognized, and my independence of judgment. I have never written something that would not be the result of a choice 
that I thought it was a fair choice, without being intimidated by anybody. I love life. I think that being born is extraordinary, even when life is ugly. Ariana Falacci, journalist, war correspondent, and author, died last week in her hometown of Florence, Italy. She was 77. She had suffered from cancer for many years. She is perhaps one of the most provocative interviewers of her generation, or any generation, whose fame reached its peak in the 1970s. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. Thank you. Uh, Rena Falacci certainly was a remarkable, though uh, controversial, figure, and she held opinions that most of us would vehemently disagree with, but we're here to focus on the qualities she exemplified as a journalist and their relevance to journalism today. So to start with, I want to ask our guests, could each of you say a little bit about what drew you to become a journalist in the first place? And do you find in journalism today the same motivating factors that drew you in to begin with, or have things changed? So Tom, could you start? Sure. Uh, I, uh, my origin story with journalism is not unusual. Um, I was young, I was 15, and I volunteered, this is the early 1970s, to go to, from a, my neighborhood white all-white high school uh, to desegregate an all-black high school um, uh, as part of what was considered a, an innovative uh, desegregation experiment at the time and discovered pretty innocently that I was in the middle of a political maelstrom in my community that I did not understand and that uh, uh, you could not solve the problem for a 15-year-old, you could not solve the problems of, uh, uh, of racial inequality and social justice by putting kids together in high school for the first time. Um, and these things were very complicated, uh, more complicated than anything I was, to me, learning in classroom. And uh, an upperclassman said to me, uh, we want you to come, a, a kid who was a senior and I was a sophomore said, uh, we want you to come work for the school newspaper. I was bowled over that a senior knew who I was. 
uh, let alone that he knew anything about me and wanted me to, me to work on the school newspaper. So I did that. I really never looked back. By the time the summer, that, after that first summer, I knew I would be a journalist. The guy who recruited me to do this, uh, he joined the other side. It was Mike McCurry who became a flack for, a, for Bill Clinton and many other politicians. So I served truth, but, uh, but Mike... <laughs> As Oriana says, you know, sublimated line. Uh, I will just say this also. Uh, I teach journalism now, uh, and the students that I have today, at a time when journalism is under threat, are motivated by the same sense of mission that I had and discovered in 1971. That's great, thank you. Patrick. Um, I, yeah, I have a, uh, I, probably a somewhat atypical um, story in that I, I did a bunch of things before I started working professionally as a journalist, but it, it wasn't for, for lack of trying. So I went to law school, I went to grad school. Um, I uh, initially wrote a, wrote a book, um, but I was always trying to break in and become a magazine journalist. Um, it just took a while because there's no real... Uh, you know, there's no kind of standard process for getting in. It seemed like a mysterious profession to break into. But I had been reading The New Yorker since I was a kid. Um, my parents had a subscription. I started reading it as a teenager. And so it, it seems strange to say, but my initial aspiration was not to be a journalist, you know, of any sort, but specifically to write for The New Yorker. And at the time, people would say, you know, good luck, kid. Uh, that's great. Good for you. Um, and... It, uh, it took a lot of trying, but the, the quality that I think I gravitated to was that um, there was a literary approach to the writing. There was, a, there was a way of taking some of the aspects that I enjoyed in, in fiction and applying them to nonfiction. But I think more particularly, uh, there was a way in which a, a big, long magazine article could take an incredibly complex topic and in a way that felt rigorous, uh, could also make it accessible. And accessible to me as a high school student, that I could sit down and spend an hour reading a New Yorker piece. I was a first year in college when the O.J. Simpson verdict came down, which was a, a huge moment um, it, at the time. It, it certainly felt like it, and one that uh, exposed a lot of fault lines in this country. And Henry Louis Gates wrote a long piece for The New Yorker called 13 Ways of Looking at a Black Man. And he took what I felt was, had, it was a sort of a topic that was like a political football. People on the news were arguing about it. You'd see newspaper coverage. But he just kind of thoughtfully talked to all these different people and just looked at it from all these different vantage points and just deeply changed my thinking on it. And I think I could appreciate the art, the artistry with which he did that, but also the idea that... Um, that this wasn't a story for specialists. It wasn't, you know, he was a professor, but it wasn't a, a story for academics. It was something that anybody could approach. And so that was what a, appealed to me and drew me in. It took quite a long time for me to actually engineer the career that I wanted to have. There were a bunch of false starts. Um, but I would say to the second part of your question today, yeah, I still love that about it. In some ways, I feel as though... Um, complexity is what is often missing in, in the way we cover 
different types of stories these days, and it's what I still love. I, I think that that most of us, if you know, I, I often say, if, if it's a, there's you know, some, there are certain stories that I gravitate to, and and my feeling is, if if you think it's a simple story about which you should have uncomplicated feelings, then you're not looking at it hard enough. That that complexity and nuance are worth um, tackling and worth tackling in a way that I hope is. Um, is not forbid, forbidding and can use sort of character and story to draw people in and really make them engage. Great, thank you. So let's get to the Falaji quotation in the title of our session, right? Journalism is in the service of truth. To what extent would you consider truth a value in journalism today? Is it possible to love truth more than your own opinion? Uh, Tom, how has the value of truth shaped your own work? So this is something that I've written about in my nonfiction books, which are about journalism, including one book called The Elements of Journalism, which gets at what is journalism uh, supposed to do. Um, it's a wonderful quote. You have to love truth more than your own opinion. I think that's actually a fantastic phrase for what uh, the mission of journalism should be. Uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between, you know, the word truth has many meanings. Uh, 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 there are, uh, you know, what, what, we're, what we are talking about in journalism is not moral truth or absolute truth. It is something that I would call uh, closer to practical truth, um, by which I mean we, you know, police uh, do investigations and we have trials and uh, people are convicted and we have legislation, we solve problems. That's the kind of truth that journalism is dealing with, right? Did, what happened? What was said? You move on from there. There is this question about can journalism do more than facts? Can it aspire to more than accuracy? Uh, and I think the answer is yes and has to be yes. Um, even in 1947, as we were coming out of World War II and uh, dealing with the, our recovery from Nazism and fascism and the efforts by the Nazis to use propaganda, there was a very famous commission uh, called the Hutchins Commission that, ex that talked about what were the responsibilities of journalism. 1947, the birth of television. And they said, it is not enough to say that, uh, to provide the facts, we need to provide the truth about the facts. So early on, you know, many, many years ago, what does that mean? How do journalists get to the truth about the facts? How do they add context? I think there's four ideas that help me with this. One is um, the idea that, that journalism is really a discipline of verification. You go out and you try and find out what happened. And that really is that essence of uh, tr loving truth more than your opinion. I think that also gets it at um, Patrick's idea that it, you, you, don't, you are not looking to confirm your preconceptions. You are looking to learn more deeply what happened. The second idea after that discipline of verification is uh, humility. You need, to under, you, you need to be serious with yourself about, okay, I'm an aging white guy from California. I go into this with these preconceptions, and I need to learn. I don't understand everything before I start. Uh, the third concept, and we'll talk more about objectivity, I think, in a minute, but is transparency. Show people how you did this. Uh, that's an important part of uh, whether they will believe you. 
And the fourth idea is that this kind of truth that we're dealing with in journalism is provisional. It is a process that uh, Carl Bernstein once said that the newspaper is the best obtainable version of the truth today, but because of the sort of real-time nature of journalism, uh, even magazine pieces, um, we, uh, we will know more tomorrow. And so the truth of, of something may not be found in an individual story, but it will be found, hopefully, in the process over time, we get closer to the truth. I would just add this. Uh, journalists assess each other, we judge each other um, that way. We say, you know, is he good or is she good? What we mean by that is, does the stuff hold up? Three, four years later, is it, how close to true was it? A great writer whose stuff doesn't hold up isn't really held in high regard by his or her colleagues. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Thank you. There's so much overlap, it seems, with even with social science and what we try to do and uh, the provisional nature of that sort of work, but also I think, yeah, those, those criteria are super important. Uh, Patrick, let's get to a more specific example. I mean, you've, uh, your latest book, The Empire of Pain, you expose the truth about the damage uh, done to society by one of the most powerful and wealthy families in the U.S., the Sacklers. How does a journalist pursue the truth when people won't tell you the truth or when there are powerful interests conspiring to keep the truth concealed? Uh, while at the same time not succumbing to, say, confirmation bias or just looking for those pieces of evidence that support your priors. Uh, and as you respond, if you could also give us a bit of background, especially for those who are not familiar with the opioid crisis, uh, as to what it was and, and what the role of the Sacklers was in, in bringing this about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, I should say, in terms of journalists evaluating each other, what you just heard from, from Tom was a kind of the, the, the product of a very organized mind. And now, by contrast, you'll get to see my... Um, I mean, <laughs> That was amazing. I, I, I should be writing those. I, I completely endorse everything you said. I just... Uh, Get out my notes. You're, yeah, <laughs> my God. You're, you're, you're a hard act to follow here. Um, uh, so now you'll hear the, the first, what a first draft looks like. The, um, um, so I wrote this book, Empire of Pain. For those of you who, um, who, particularly those of you who are not from the U.S., we are in the grip of a terrible public health crisis that's been going on here for 25 years, uh, which is referred to as the opioid crisis. Um, it's a crisis of addiction uh, and uh, overdose deaths in which people are um, finding themselves in the grip of uh, drugs that are referred to as opioids, meaning that they derive from the opium poppy. There have been different phases, so initially, it was a prescription pill crisis. It was actually pills that were approved by the Food and Drug Administration um, that people became addicted to and were, were dying from. And then it sort of morphed into a heroin crisis, heroin being a chemical cousin of those prescription pills, and now more recently, a fentanyl crisis, another uh, street drug 
that is very, very deadly. And the numbers are astronomical. Nobody knows exactly how many people have died since the mid-1990s, but it's, it's north of half a million people. 100,000 people died of overdoses just last year. So lurking in the background of um, the, the coronavirus pandemic has been this other epidemic, um, which has had a tremendous uh, um, and devastating effect on this country. What my book is about is a family, which is one of the most wealthy families in the United States, the Sackler family, who until quite recently were known primarily for their philanthropy. They've given hundreds of millions of dollars away in the arts and in the sciences. In this city, if you were to go to the Met or the Guggenheim or Columbia University or NYU, you would see the Sackler name on the wall. And this was true at institutions in London, in Paris, in Beijing, uh, in Tel Aviv, all over the world. So they were really known as this very wealthy, very generous family that was giving a lot of money away, but always wanted their name on the, the wing of the museum or on the university lecture hall. What was not as well known was that the bulk of this great fortune uh, had been acquired just in recent decades because in the mid-1990s, their pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, introduced a drug called OxyContin. And OxyContin was really the drug that started the opioid crisis. And so their company had set out to sell this drug and claim that it was not addictive and get doctors to prescribe it much more widely. And it was very successful. The drug has generated $35 billion in revenue since the mid-1990s. But also, it gave rise to this really terrible public health catastrophe. Um, when I started work on this project, which initially was an article for The New Yorker, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question about, about truth. People knew about the opioid crisis, and they knew that this company, Purdue Pharma, had played a really instrumental role in starting the opioid crisis. And they knew about the Sacklers, this well-known philanthropic dynasty but they hadn't really connected the dots. The Sacklers sort of moved through the world. They were being celebrated. They were getting knighthoods. They were winning awards. Uh, they would you know, be there at ribbon cuttings. And um, part of what I wanted to do was, was look at both sides of this story. Look at the, what I thought of as the sordid origins of this fortune. Um, so I wrote this book, which is a, actually a kind of a family, it's sort of a dynastic saga about three generations of the Sackler family. It starts in the early 20th century um, and takes you through the dawn of medical marketing because one of the earlier Sacklers made the first great fortune marketing Valium in the 1970s uh, and through to today. But the family didn't cooperate. And so the question was, how do you write a 400-page biography of a family if the family won't talk to you. And I mean, we can get into this at, at greater length, but I, I would say just briefly, um, for journalists, we refer to this as a write around. <laughs> you know, sometimes the, the subject won't talk to you, and so you have to write around them. And a lot of journalists and editors don't like these stories um, and won't assign them. There's a, we have an, a weekly ideas meeting at The New Yorker, I always chuckle, where we talk about ideas that should be in the magazine. And um, every few months, somebody will say, um, we should profile Beyonce. And, uh, and everybody will roll their eyes and say, we keep asking her, but she won't, you know, she won't cooperate. And so they all say, oh, well, we won't write a big article about Beyonce. And of course, my feeling would be, you could absolutely write a big article about her without her cooperation. You, what you do is you talk to everybody who knows her. You talk to people who she went to elementary school with, you know, people who she knew in her, her early years, family members. 
ex-boyfriends. I mean, anything, you know, is, is on the table. And it takes a lot more work to do that kind of writing. But I think that often the portrait that you create is um, a much more accurate one than what you would get if you just had access, if the subject of your story said, come on in. And if it's a, a billionaire family like the Sacklers, it would be, come on in, we'll talk to you. I'd like to introduce you to the three, these three lawyers who are going to sit here during the meeting, and here are our PR reps, and the whole thing is going to be off the record, but you can come back to us with the quotes that we'll approve. And in my view, as a journalist, if you submit to those kinds of arrangements, you're really doing PR more than you are journalism. So in the case of the Sacklers, I interviewed more than 200 people. I found people who'd known the family, people who'd worked in their homes, people who'd worked at their company. I got access to tens of thousands of pages of documents that came out from court proceedings. And you're pulling on all that to try and create a portrait. That's great. Thank you. Um, Valachi saw journalism as, as having an educational mission. And uh, the way she put it was that journalism has to help people find and preserve their dignity and uh, to give them the instruments to defend themselves. And, and Patrick, I see Empire of Pain as exemplifying these values. Uh, you're not just unmasking the Sacklers and, and also the corruption of the medical establishment and, and the, the regulators and so on, but you're also bringing to light truths that have been hidden, right? Stories of pain, of suffering. People have been deceived and gaslit for decades. And um, I want to ask you, what are you hoping your reporting will bring about? And, and especially given that it seems impossible to bring the Sacklers to justice, uh, is there something you're hoping the public will learn from, from your reporting? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It sort of goes to your earlier question about, about the truth versus your opinion. I mean, I, I, particularly for the kind of writing I do, I have a point of view, absolutely. Um, and in this case, I had sort of a theory of the case, which is this family has actually done a lot of pretty bad stuff, and it hasn't caught up with them. They've never been forced to, ask, to answer questions about this. Um, one of the things that was really striking to me as I got into my research is that Purdue Pharma launches this drug in the mid-1990s, and almost immediately people start getting addicted to it, which the company had claimed they wouldn't and couldn't. Um, and people start overdosing and they start dying. And the company kind of pretends that it's not happening. And in about 2001, when it's been a few years, it, the problem reaches a point where they have to acknowledge that there's a problem, but they make this incredible pivot. What they say is, oh, the drug isn't the problem, it's the people who are the problem. These are people with addictive personalities and you know, weak moral character. If they weren't abusing our drug, they'd be abusing some other drug. It's nothing about, I mean, it's, it's essentially uh, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? That, it, that it's not the product, and this is, I think, a, a powerful idea in our economy in this country, is that you can produce a product, it can do damage, and as long as somebody else is making some decision after you put it out into the world, it's not on you. Part of what I was trying to do with the book was, was create some measure of accountability. Um, and I don't mean accountability in a law and order way. I mean accountability just in the idea that you shouldn't be able to move through this world and never have to answer questions about decisions that you've made that have had momentous consequences. But the flip side is that I've gotten to know many, many families who have uh, lost people to addiction. And I think that the way in which we talk about addiction in this country is often quite cruel, and I think that it often is sort of based on a notion that it's all about free will. You know, if you know somebody who's struggling with addiction, really what they need to do is just get their act together, 
um, and to the degree that they don't, that's all on them. And what I saw was a concerted effort by an industry to destigmatize an extremely addictive class of drugs, which was wildly successful. It made billions of dollars, but at the same time created a lot of havoc. And so I wanted to, I hope, tell a story where, where people would understand it's not as simple as, oh, it's just a bunch of junkies out here um, abusing drugs because that's what they want to do, that there are en entrenched and extremely powerful corporate interests on the other side of that who have benefited lavishly from this terrible public health crisis. Thank you. I think it is, it is a great act of public service, what you've done. That book is really absolutely, I think, an essential read. Uh, there is a challenge, though, I think, right, that um, in uncovering such scandals, uh, particularly with the pharma industry in this time of a pandemic, whether people might start to wonder, can we really trust the companies that are making billions off, say, vaccines and vaccine mandates? Can we trust the CDC? And is there collusion? And so I, I wonder, yeah, how, 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 might we, how might the public then navigate those questions as to whom to trust? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. This has been so awkward for me, I have to tell you, because the book um, came out in April. And in, the, there's, in an early section of the book, I tell this whole story about how Pfizer, in the 1950s, bribed an FDA official. Um, and it was a huge scandal, and one of the Sacklers was involved in this whole thing, and there was a congressional inquiry, and at the point where the book came out, I had just had my first dose of Pfizer, <laughs> and was eagerly waiting for my second one, and, um, and I, in a way, this goes back to, to what I said earlier about complexity, that on the one hand, I think we have to recognize that um, big Pharma is a profit-driven industry. Uh, the, the first consideration is actually not your health. People are not doing this for purely altruistic reasons. I think many of you, if you've been to a hospital recently, have probably experienced this. You start to feel like a widget. You realize that there are a lot of people thinking about money, and that is governing your experience in the hospital. Uh, the FDA has had really significant failings, not just in the 1950s, but actually, you know, in the case of OxyContin, the FDA examiner who approved OxyContin and then signed off on all the marketing for the drug, uh, subsequently went to work for Purdue Pharma for three times his government salary. I look at that, and that seems not necessarily illegal, but pretty questionable to me. So I think you can be... Um, you can be aware that we shouldn't take everything for granted, but not slide all the way to the other end of the spectrum and say, I'm not gonna believe anything, I don't take the FDA's word for anything, Big Pharma is out to poison me, I shouldn't listen to the consensus of opinion of doctors and experts who are telling me I should get vaccinated. I, I realize that we live in a moment in our culture where everything gets flattened to a, a bumper sticker of one sort or another, and, and this is the sense in which I feel as though the kind of writing I do and the kind of writing that I think we, you know, we cherish um, is somewhat endangered because there's a sense of, well, whose team are you on? Which side are you on? Are you pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? How should we, should we trust the FDA or not trust the FDA? And I think most of us, if you really engage with it, realize that you can walk through your life day to day and not be kind of on, on one extreme of total credulousness or the other extreme of total cynicism, that you have to kind of take in the information that you get and make a, 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 a solid calculation. Um, 
but I think the vaccines are miracles, and uh, I think we should all get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Now, some see uh, you know, a tension today between pursuing truth and something like social reform. Um, in, in our politically polarized environment, there are many who have really given up on truth and the possibility of truth. And there are some who think that objectivity is impossible. Uh, all you have is, is some sort of moral clarity that can come really from your social position, from your social location, your ethnic group, your, your community, your political community. But if that's the case, all we're left with is a power struggle between groups trying to change the world to their own advantage. Uh, Tom, you've pushed back in your, in your work against this idea. Do you think objectivity is possible in journalism? Can one be objective without uh, abandoning their moral commitments? Uh, yes, I'm a defender of objectivity, but I'm also, I think it's very important to define it. Um, it's a lousy word because the, the opposite of objectivity is subjectivity, and we all have subjectivity. There are great debates in, in historiography and philosophy over what does objectivity mean. I think the, the first thing to understand is objectivity does not mean neutrality, okay? Objectivity refers to, and it comes from social science and science, it refers to using an objective method to do your work. Uh, when the concept of objectivity migrated, in fact, in the early 20th century into journalism, it was precisely at a moment in time when people were becoming aware of the subjective after Freud, you know, the unconscious was something that intellectuals were thinking about, and the idea came from intellectuals. It was a call for, in the words of Walter Lippmann, a more scientific spirit in journalism. Things like Think of transparency and you get closer to what the idea of objectivity was in these early days when it migrated. Um, Datelines, like where were you when you wrote the story, was an early effort at objectivity. Bylines, who wrote this, was an early step toward objectivity. So fast forward to today and a much more complicated uh, world. Um, we might have lived in a time when, that I would call the trust me era of news. Walter Cronkite saying, you know, that's the way it is. And then he would give the date, I'm Walter Cronkite, um, CBS News. We now live in the show me era of journalism. Show me why I should believe you. And that, I think, gets you closer to the idea, if you think of objectivity as a process, as a method that, the, that we need that the journalist needs to um, show his or her work and how they arrived at this, show their evidence, um, uh, 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 th th uh, bec precisely because the journalist can never be ob objective, so their work, but their work can be if they used a process. 
the, co the highest compliment you could pay a journalist, I mean, I would say that uh, Patrick's an objective, does objective journalism. Um, his books are not neutral. Um, they, he has a point of view. The highest compliment you can pay uh, a journalist is to say, I, I loved your book. I really disagreed with this conclusion. Because that means I've, tr I've trusted the work and recognized which part of it was an, uh, the interpretive part. The other thing I would just add is that um, when you see a piece of work that is really good, that's really strong, if I, dis if I did disagree, let's say, with uh, your concept of uh, blaming victims, and I thought that, that you were wrong about that, there's sufficient evidence in the book that we can, we're, we're talking about the evidence, and it's no longer an ad hominem debate about you being a bad person or something like that. So that's the way, if we, if, we get, if we throw out the word objectivity and think of was the method of reporting strong, you actually get to uh, something that is closer to uh, the original meaning of objectivity. I'll just add this one other thing. I'm, I know I'm going on a bit. Um, the first step, if you look at historiography and philosophy, the first step in the objective method is identifying what philosopher Thomas Nagel calls my initial view. In other words, instead of denying that I have a point of view, the first step I take is to say, okay, I am this person, this is, this is where I start. How do I expand my view, talk to more people, and begin to understand the world more comprehensively, or the subject I'm talking about more comprehensively, rather than just staying, you know, going out and proving that I was right in the first place. That is the objective method. I wish we had be a better word for it. I don't like moral clarity as a as substitute because, like, the Proud Boys have moral clarity. They're sure. They're absolutely sure. And the more you know about something, the more complex it becomes, the less clarity you may have. I, I like a, a, a phrase like moral inquiry for what journalism should be rather than moral clarity. Thank you. Something else that Falaci used to say was that a journalist without enemies is not doing a great job. Um, she often disobeyed her editors, putting her career at risk. Could you talk about how speaking the truth or pursuing the truth has been risky or costly for you? And perhaps, Tom, you could start. Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, when you're a young journalist and you're going out to cover things like that you don't have an opinion about, like a zoning commission, it's fine, it's whatever. But eventually, um, you will find yourself in a position where um, uh, you're writing about people you like, uh, you don't want to hurt them, uh, uh, you, um, uh, uh, you are covering a presidential contest and you like one candidate over another and you think it's really important that one side win and the other side lose, and you have to, you have to wrestle with that internally. Um, when I was doing my very first book, um, it was, I followed ABC News as they covered the 1992, I'm pretty old, the 1992 uh, presidential election, Bill Clinton's election. And uh, I was a fly on the wall inside ABC News. They gave me complete access for the year. And um, I was sitting in a bar with an ABC correspondent uh, who I got to like a lot, and he said, look, you're going to have a real challenge this year doing this book because there, there are all these people like giving you access and, and you really like them, you admire them, and you're going 
you're going to really feel like you don't want to burn these friendships. And he said to me, just tell the truth. And I remember that night in that bar vividly and that advice. And he'd written many books and this was my first. It sounds pretty simple, you know, almost overly simplistic, but you know what, you know what he meant. I knew what he meant. Those words, as simple as they were, and I've just, they've stuck with me. All right, thank you. Patrick, you've, you've had people. I've got enemies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not here. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, just, just a little uh, footnote on that. I mean, yeah, I, I think the, I, I, one of the very hardest things, I think, about this work is that you, you can pull no punches and you do need, ultimately you, you need to answer to the truth and to the degree that you feel as though you are trying to shape the truth one way or the other because of relationships that you develop, um, you're cheating, you're not doing your job. And so as a consequence, at least for me, I mean, I, I, I'll spend six months writing an article. I, I really get to know people. Y you, you, often end up in quite intimate relationships with the people you're writing about. And I think inescapably some of those people feel as though it's a betrayal when they read what I write, um, which is hard. I've had situations in which I, you know, I develop quite a close relationship with somebody I'm writing about, the piece comes out and they never speak to me again. And I think in their minds, um, it's almost like I'm a con man, right? That I've like suckered them into this relationship and in fact I thought something different. And I'm always at pains all along the way to say, listen, eventually I'm gonna sit down and write my piece and when I do, you know, I'm not your PR spokesperson. I have to, uh, to call it like I see it. And, and that's a hard part of the job. Um, another hard part of the job, if you, if you do the kind of thing that I've done, um, over the years where you're writing about wealthy people behaving badly is that they harass you. I mean, you know, I get, with this Sackler book, they started threatening to sue me before I'd started writing. Um, <laughs> I literally was like, Give me, can I at least start writing? You know, um, <laughs> the, um, they, there was an announcement that I was writing the book and I got a 17 page single space legal letter from a lawyer who was saying, we're gonna sue you. I got another letter that said, it's called a litigation freeze, where they said, because there's a high likelihood that we'll eventually sue you when your book comes out, you need to not destroy any of your documents. You need to hold on to everything. Don't throw anything away, don't shred anything, because this is all evidence uh, for the eventual lawsuit that may happen. Um, we got so many letters. Um, that came from the Sacklers? Yeah, from a lawyer representing the Sacklers. Um, the, um, I mean, it was kind of comical at a certain point. Like, I got dozens of these letters over the years. I kept, I kept. <laughs> and they told you to keep it off the record, too, right? Yeah, they, they would, and the letters would say, hilariously, the letters at the top would say, like, off the record, not to be quoted. And of course, you know, that's not the way journalism works, right? You need my agreement. So I would say, no, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be quoting that letter. And I, and I do, in the book. Um, I, I, there's this gentleman named Tom Clare, uh, who's a, he, he, um, if you, if you, if you read a story about a powerful, wealthy person allegedly doing something really terrible, uh, it's a safe bet that eventually in like paragraph 10, they're going to say, Tom Clare, an attorney for this person, you know, he's, he's really, uh, he gets around, but, um, um, 
No, I kept threatening my wife that I wanted to wallpaper our bathroom with the letters that I got from this guy. She didn't stop. She, she wasn't into the idea. But the, um, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm joking about it, and I sound cavalier, and I should say I'm speaking from a position of great privilege, right, because I write for The New Yorker, and I've been there for 15 years. I, I've been with my editor at Doubleday, who is the publisher of Doubleday, for three books, you know, for 15 years, again. Um, there are lawyers at both places who I trust and I have a good relationship with. I went to law school myself. I, you know, I, I have, I'm, it's maybe a little bit harder to rattle me than it is somebody else. So I, I don't mean to sound flip. I think what is, what is frightening for me in the, con in the case of the Sacklers, but I think this is actually true with a lot of very wealthy uh, people and corporations, um, is I looked at the whole history of people who had less privilege than I do and less power than I, I mean, I don't have a lot of power, but I have a little power. People who had less than I do, journalists who were driven out of the business um, because of the way in which the company went after them, people who worked at the company and tried to blow the whistle and, and just they came down on them like a ton of bricks. Um, and what I saw was a uh, I think a pretty finely honed system in which you get PR spin doctors, you get uh, nasty, vexatious lawyers, you get this whole apparatus of enablers who surround people. And listen, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, like I, the list goes on, right? I mean, th th we know these stories now. And I think a lot of the time after the fact, Epstein, Weinstein, the Sacklers, after the fact, people look back and they say, my God, how could they get away with it so long? And the answer is that they have this infrastructure of people who in some cases are quite respectable. I mean, this is people I went to law school with in some instances, right? Who think of themselves as just respectable professionals who are out there just doing a job. Everybody deserves a lawyer. Um, and I see mercenaries who are, uh, who are helping protect people who are doing bad things. So I, I, I don't mean to joke about it too much. It's a very unpleasant aspect of the job, but I also think that when I get a nasty letter like that, all it does is make me feel as though what I'm doing is important and that I, I should not be cowed and not be intimidated and all the more reason why you need to keep pushing forward. And I should say the book's been out for nine months and they haven't sued me yet, so let's see. <laughs> That's great. So if you want to be a journalist, become a lawyer first. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would really not advise that, actually. It's a very expensive <laughs> way to do it. Let me just, in, in our last minute, if you could uh, comment on one more thing. So trust in media in our polit polit polarized climate is at historic lows. And last year, one of our guests, Matt Taibbi, talked about how news media conglomerates have become rich by fueling these divisions, right? So many in our audience are likely wondering, can we trust journalists anymore? Who do we trust? How do we know whom to trust? Uh, what advice would you have for them? And so, so maybe just a minute, Patrick, and then Tom. Can have you close. Boy, it's hard to do that in a minute. I, I would say, <laughs> um, uh, trust the New Yorker. The, um, uh, <laughs> no. I, I do, listen, I think the, the, the era, the, the Cronkite era is gone, right? And it's true that we shouldn't just take what journalists tell us as the, the word of God. I mean, you need to be kind of questioning, but I think find outlets that you do trust. And for all the reasons uh, that Tom was talking about, about objectivity, about transparency. You know, in my case, you can read my book, there's 100 pages of endnotes. If you find a claim that you find, that you're wondering, well, how did he know that? You can go to the back. The vast majority of people won't do it. 
but there's an audit trail there that says you can trust me when I'm saying these things because I'll show my work. So I think, you know, find the authors, find the journalists, find the outlets that you trust and navigate it that way. Don't believe anything you read on Facebook. You know, keep, keep pushing through, find the source and, and be a critical reader. Yeah, I, I, and I would say, I mean, journalism is no longer a homogenous entity, right? There are many different models of journalism and uh, I have friends who watch cable news and I tell them that's not journalism. There isn't one channel that is, you know, that, that those are, their economic model is to feed the outrage of the audience that they have built and now they are prisoners of that audience and that outrage. CNN is in crisis because they don't know what they're going to do. They, they've wandered so far from basically providing news. Um, the whole model there is you have to add to the lead-in audience. So if you inherit an audience at 8 o'clock that's this size, if you, if you lose that audience because you're not feeding the outrage and giving them what they want, you're going to lose your time slot. That's, that's, that's just the way it is. So, I mean, I think, unfortunately, it requires a savvy consumer to, as Patrick says, find the places you like, but also to um, uh, broaden your own lens. Um, I make a point of reading the Dispatch and the National Review and the Bulwark, which are conservative publications, and follow some conservative writers uh, so that I have a wider world than the one I start with. Uh, that's a lot to ask of a consumer. Um, you know, and we are all prisoners of the platform, so we could have a whole other session about how their algorithms are manipulating us um, to want outrage, um, and to change our expectations of what journalism will give us. Um, uh, that idea that people want their preconceptions affirmed, what I call the journalism of affirmation, the, the, the platforms, Facebook uh, and Google, particularly YouTube, have increased our demand for that exponentially in the last five or six years. Uh, and they've been found out and they don't care. They just don't care. Their economic model is built on manipulating you to stay, and they know what will make you stay is making you mad. Right. Well, let's come to, we're at the end of, the end of our conversation. Let's thank our speakers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag The New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.